Amen. Have a seat, guys. We'll just, uh, well, you just prayed, actually, what I was thinking. I mean, my hope is that when we sing a song like we just sung, that our life is hidden in Christ. That that would almost cause us to be like David, to dance. And uh, I know there wasn't any dancing in this room uh, because a lot of you are just Dutch. But uh, I hope that's what's going on in our hearts. We're hidden in him. And you know what that means? I'm just going to, because this is where my whole sermon's going this morning. I, I don't try to have punchlines. Um, it means that when God looks at you, he looks at you in the same way he looks at his son. My son, in whom I'm well pleased. And that is just the gospel. So, are we doing well today? Beautiful day, isn't it? Um, Just a couple of things before we dive into uh, Matthew. Number one, this marriage retreat that's coming up. And doggone it, Mark Tesla, I'm almost tempted to have you come up here right now. Mark, are you in the house? Get over here right now. Come on. I love putting people on the spot like this. But uh, Steph, too, should probably be up here. uh, But she's shaking her head no. Um, These guys have spearheaded a team with me that they are now running, um, the marriage ministry team. And it's a team of people that are just going for the marriages of this church because we want to be a church where there is no divorce. But more than that, we want our marriages to be all that God intended for our marriages to be. And one of the things that uh, our team is doing is we're putting on a retreat at the end of January. And Mark, tell us the dates of that. January 25. And if you think that's the only reason you're up here, you're wrong. (laughs) Okay? But January 25, I think we already have 30 or more couples signed up with just one little announcement. Okay? So that tells me almost all the marriages of our church are going to be there that weekend. Give me an amen to that. Thank you. By the way, I was at your alma mater. Or watched your alma mater yesterday. Yeah. Hillsdale. Oh, Hillsdale. Hillsdale, yeah. Nice. Did you play there? I did. Yeah. My dad told me that yesterday, and I didn't know that about you. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Why are you going on this thing? It's a great question. Um, I was actually sitting back there wondering if you were going to call me up here. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's about why not go? Why not invest in probably the second most important relationship that you're ever going to have? And not only are we going to challenge you in that relationship, but we're also going to challenge you with the vertical relationship. Because if you have the vertical relationship going, this connection starts to happen. And that's our passion as a marriage team. Amen. Bless God. All right, you guys. So that's that. Um, And you've had firsthand experience, haven't you, Mark, with your own marriage, being in the pit? Yes. And and God just rescuing it and saving it. And I'll tell you, every, every person on this marriage team has a story of God's grace and redemption. Um, And so that's what those 24 hours are going to be about. It's not going to be about making people feel guilty. Um, It's going to be about wherever your marriage is, getting your marriage uh, showered in the grace of Jesus Christ and letting that grace work itself through. So if you guys have any questions, though, find this guy or his wife afterward, okay? 
Hey, our um, alma mater. Oh, you got something to say. I don't. I was just going to say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> our alma mater is in the semifinals. You I know. That, that yeah. is cool, too. Yeah, good. See you, buddy. All right, Matthew 12, let's go. While you're looking for that, that's found on page 792, if you have a Bible like this. The way we're going about Matthew, I just want to tell you it's such a homiletical challenge for me to take such a huge chunk of Scripture and to preach it. It's just a lot easier to take about six or seven verses um, because I want to explain everything, but we can't, okay? Um, We're going to look at Matthew 12 this morning. There's like five different important chunks, but we're going to look at the first chunk, and I'm going to tell you this right now. I think this whole chapter is about the first chunk, which is about Sabbath, okay? So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Better word there is improper. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? David entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in Torah... That the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they are innocent. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, says God, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For (laughs) the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Almost like they know what's coming. (laughs) He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, tell me, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then I love this. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So the man stretched out his hand, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And the Pharisees went out. And plotted on how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word. You can be seated. Please this week, if you're uh, really studying the book of Matthew, um, read the rest of this and, and, and meditate on it. Again, we're looking at Matthew's gospel to really ask these three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And why does it matter? And I think what we're seeing here in this chapter is what Neil talked about last week. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It does. And we've heard this said of certain people. 
That person doesn't have an enemy in the world. You ever heard that said of someone? And you know, usually when we say that or hear that, we, we, we think of that as a compliment, and, and it is. However, you could never say that of Jesus. People hated him. They did. In fact, it's right here in our text in, in verse 14. You have the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees are the pastors, preachers, and teachers of the Bible Belt. That's who they are. Um, in Mark's gospel, he also puts another detail in, in, into this. He says not only the Pharisees, but he says the Pharisees got together with the Herodians and they plotted together on how they might kill Jesus. Who are the Herodians? I'll tell you what this is the equivalent of. People from the blue states, people from the red states, coming together and being unified over their hatred of something. In this case, it's blue states and red states coming together over their hatred of Jesus. They hate him. And here's what I want to just say about this right now. When we read the Gospels, it is hard to find an apathetic response to Jesus. Everyone's response is intense. You either fall at his feet and worship him, or you cry out, crucify him. And I'll tell you the people that I'm most concerned about in this room right now are not even the people who hate Jesus. Because people who hate Jesus at least can see Jesus for who he is. It's the people who are apathetic to him. Who have no response. And sadly to say, we have so many churches filled with people like that. Bless God. It's such, a, it's such a joy to be at this church. It's such an encouraging thing to be at this church, to be a part of this community of people. I sense pathos, passion, response to Jesus and who he is. Okay. Now, the tipping point of this tension, or you could almost call it the breaking point, it's the issue of the Sabbath. Now, look at verse 1. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. He, his disciples were hungry. Notice that. They were hungry. They began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. Now, during this time, there are different ideas on what it meant to keep Sabbath. The Pharisees obviously thought that these guys were breaking Sabbath. That's why you read verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, almost like they're spying on them, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So they accuse him. They, actually, it's, it's his disciples that they accuse of not keeping Sabbath. Now listen, before we get into this accusation, I first want to talk about Sabbath. Namely, what Sabbath meant to the Jews of Jesus' day, which is largely still what Jews believe about Sabbath to this day. What is Sabbath? Seventh day. What do you do on the seventh day? You rest. Okay, that's what the Sabbath is. It's most basic definition. 
what I want you to know this morning is that Sabbath lies at the heart of the Jewish identity. That the essence of a Jew is someone who keeps Sabbath. And this goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. And the thing that I want you to know about the Jews, that to them, Sabbath is more than even one of the Ten Commandments, which makes it huge. But Sabbath is the symbol of their unique relationship to God. In fact, this unique relationship to God is spelled out in Exodus 19, where God says to them, he says, remember how I carried you um, on, on, on my wings and how I took you to myself. That word take is the word that a husband would do for a bride. This is wedding language. He says, out of all the nations, out of all the peoples of the world, you will be my most treasured possession. The Hebrew word there is segula. In other words, God is saying, you will be to me my pearl of great price, my beloved. And so the relationship with God was seen as a marriage. God is their husband. They are God's bride. And Sabbath then becomes the symbol of this marriage. It's the wedding ring. So you and I today, especially if you were raised in the Christian Reformed Church, (laughs) might look at Sabbath as these burdensome laws that Jesus and the gospel came to set us free of. But I want you to know that to the observant Jew, Sabbath is the furthest thing from being a burden. They don't think of it that way. Sabbath to them is one of the greatest gifts. It's a gift. It's, it, it, it's, it's what a wedding ring is to a love-smitten bride. It's that symbol that we get to wear to remind us who we are. That we don't belong to this world, but we are his, and we're his segula, his pearl of great price. In fact, when Libby and I uh, lived in Jerusalem, this just, it shocked us because I grew up in a, in a tradition that, that kept Sabbath, and Sabbath, to me, always felt like this burden. What blew us away, starting Friday night of every week in Jerusalem, because that's when Sabbath begins, and you could feel it building throughout Friday, Joy, joy erupted in this city. It was like it was Christmas once a week. One of the things that was was the most fun for us is we would go um, to Temple Mount because a lot of times that's where um, a lot of the Jewish people would congregate on Sabbath. And a lot of times you would see a modern-day rabbi with, with, with his disciples uh, these young guys, and they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Literally, these guys are just in a circle, dancing and singing, and Shabbat Shalom. So it's within this context that I, that I want us to see that Sabbath observance became very important to the Jews, and it begins with Jesus. They wanted to get this right. Now, here's something that complicates this at the time of Jesus. One, God's instruction in his word regarding Sabbath is very big picture. It's not very specific. Let me read this from Deuteronomy 5, which is the Ten Commandments. 
Observe the Sabbath day, says God, by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey or any other of the animals. He says, I want you to do this because I want you to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's pretty general. Don't work, rest, and remember what you once were. You were slaves in Egypt. And remember what I did for you. Okay. So what does it mean to keep Sabbath? What does it mean to lay down my work? What does it mean to rest? Can I ride my bike? Can I go swimming? Can I go to the store and buy something? <laughs> Some of you are, remember this, right? And are still there. Also add to this that this question is at a time when the top-down structure that once existed of the temple and its priests and its sacrifices is being replaced with this organic bottom-up movement of Torah and rabbis teaching Torah in the synagogue which that whole thing is very comparable to the Reformation. When the church moved from the Pope and the priests and the ritual of Mass, and it moved more to God's Word and to the teachers of God's Word. Because with this became so many different interpretations and then denominations, and the same thing is going on in Jesus' day. That's why you have Sadducees, Essenes, Pharisees, Zealots, Herodians. For instance... On this issue of Sabbath alone, the Essenes, which was this desert community, made Sabbath the ultimate command. So much so that if a person was dying, you couldn't help them. Now, the Pharisees were much more liberal. They said, wait a second, if someone's dying, you can then do the work of helping them. In fact, they even took it further. Even if one of your animals is struggling, you can help your animal. Now, the Pharisees, over time, this would include the scribes, the rabbis, the Torah teachers, they developed this body of traditions. The body of traditions is called the halakha. Halak means what? Does anybody remember? I halak God's derech. I walk God's path. So the halakha is to them how God's Torah must get walked out in a person's life. It's the fence that they put around Torah. So for Sabbath alone in the halakha, they have 39 categories of things a person can and cannot do on Sabbath. And of course, two of those things Jesus and his disciples are breaking. You're not allowed to pluck. You're not allowed to gather. You're not allowed to prepare food. You're not allowed to finish it so you can eat it. But what I want us to see, and this whole halakha in the, in the New Testament is called the tradition of, of, of the elders. It's all the rabbinic applications of God's word. I want us to see. Those are the teachings of men. 
That is, those are not the teachings of God. They do not carry the authority of God. And so what I also want us to see, because I think so many Christians misunderstand, they just think that when Jesus comes along, he completely does away with Torah. So in this case, ah, Sabbath is such a burdensome thing. Thank goodness for Jesus and the gospel. That, that thing's just like thrown out. That's not what he did. He says it. I didn't come to abolish the Torah. He says, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to perfectly explain it. And so Jesus, as we're learning here, he is the new Moses. He's the one who's going to come and he's going to perfectly explain God's word to us. And he's going to perfectly halak it. He's going to show us how to walk this thing out. I want you to see what a brilliant rabbi this guy is. Jesus is the best. It's all right here in our text. Because like I said, their, 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 their accusation is actually based on, well, I got a good word for it, legalism. Legalism is anything that's not God's. Legalism is the teachings of men. So what Jesus does is he takes this argument to the authority of Scripture. First, he uses the example of David. Look at verses 3 through 4. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were, were hungry? David entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. That's the show bread, which was in the most holy place, which was only for the priest to eat. But David is running for his life. His men are kind of hungry. And even though no one but the priests are allowed to eat this bread, David gets it, and he eats it. In other words, he clearly violates Torah. But here's the deal. God never condemns David for this. Why not? His men are hungry. Human need. And see, what Jesus is doing is he is inviting us to think out the implications of this. In other words, what's the law's true intent? Second example is the priest in the temple. Priests obviously have to work on Sabbath, where there is no temple worship, just like me today. This is my biggest work day. I have to work. But here's the deal. When a priest is working... To obey one law, it forces them to break another. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but sometimes God's laws actually pit themselves against each other. I think the classic example that we sometimes talk about is maybe the Dutch resistance movement in World War II when a family would hide the Jews. And the Nazis come to your house. Are there Jews in here? What do you do? I'm telling you, someone just boldly said, you lie. I'm telling you, someone in this room, I guarantee it would be offended by that answer. Don't you trust God? Do we ever have to lie? And so it forces us then to ask which command is greater, which is the lesser. Do I keep Sabbath? Do I not keep Sabbath? And see, that forces us to ask, what is the law's true intent? And that's the tension that we need to feel here. 
See, what Jesus then does is he's using a rabbinic teaching technique called ka-wahomer, which is this. It, it's to argue from a minor to a major, from a lighter, lighter thing to a weightier thing. For instance, if something is true in a minor manner, how much more true then is it in a major matter? I'm telling you, Jesus uses this all the time. He says in one place, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? Or consider the ravens of the field. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Or if David and his men were guiltless to eat the showbread when hungry, then how much more guiltless would Jesus be and his disciples? For I tell you, someone greater than David is is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And if the priests are not guilty for working the Sabbath, how much more innocent then are these disciples of mine for something greater than the temple is here? And if it's okay to help a lamb on the Sabbath, how much more is it okay to help hungry people? You see where he's going with this? And then he ends it by quoting from Hosea 6, verse 6, where God says, I desire mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In fact, mercy, when you translate that back into the Hebrew, is that Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is David's favorite word to describe God. It's, it's this unfailing, lay-your-life-down kind of love. And Jesus is saying, that's the law's true intent. In fact, when you read Matthew's gospel... Jesus uses this word mercy, or the Hebrew word hesed, which is probably how it came out of his lips, three times. Once he uses it here, another time he uses it in Matthew 9. I want us to see these things, because each time he's addressing the Pharisees, um, this time it's when Jesus calls the sinful tax collector Matthew and eats in Matthew's home with all those other sinners. And verse 13, 11, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what does your teacher, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And go and learn what this means. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It says the same thing here. And this whole tension between him and the Pharisees of his day is going to culminate in Matthew 23. (laughs) Wait till we get to that chapter. Verse 23 of chapter 3, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and that, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have learned the latter, but you neglected the former, you blind guides. See, that's the law's intent. It's justice. And when I say justice, think social justice. It's mercy. It's having compassion on people who need help. 
It's faithfulness, faithfulness to God. It's Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And see, Jesus finishes this whole thing off with, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) I'm surprised they didn't kill him right there. Because what Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I created Sabbath. Sabbath was my idea. I was the first to do Sabbath. And I instructed Sabbath. Because I know what Sabbath is. And I have a specific purpose for it. So don't think Jesus is doing away with Sabbath. He is the Lord of Sabbath. And I'll take it further than that. He came to bring Sabbath. That's why he came. You know what Sabbath means? Sabbath is a Hebrew word, Shabbat. What does it mean? Rest. See, and rest is always proof of the presence of the kingdom of heaven. Rest. Is there rest here right now? Is your life marked with rest? What does this rest look like? I'll just tick these things off because they're all in our text. Jesus is flushing out what Shabbat, what rest, true rest looks like. Uh, It starts with verse 13. Jesus sees this man with a withered hand. Something tells me there was something grotesque about it, okay? They didn't have good doctors back in that day or good medicine. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. That's Sabbath. Because God takes something in that moment, something that's dead, something that's withered, and he completely restores it. That is the meaning of Sabbath. Sabbath is about the restoration of things broken, of things withered. It's God even getting not just sheep, but God getting people in their lives out of the pit. In fact, remember this, that Sabbath, of course, falls in the seventh day. Seven, again, is the number for completion and wholeness. And Sabbath was more than a day, but also you had the the sabbatical year. Um, And then you had that ultimate Sabbath, that seventh, seventh year, which was called Jubilee. Tell me that's not what Jesus came to bring. Whenever God's kingdom breaks out, there will be rest. Second thing, and I have to tick these things off kind kind of fast. Go down to verse 29. Jesus says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house? That's quite a parable that Jesus gives us there. That's a metaphor. And, And I would say that that's a metaphor for a person's life, but I also think it's bigger than that. That house or the castle, as it could be translated, is the world. And our world right now is dominated by a strong man. 
Who's the strong man? He goes by all kinds of names. Satan is probably the most obvious one. But look at verses 43 through 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, that's part of the strong man's world. It goes through arid places. What's it seeking? Rest. It doesn't find it. See, the strong man, to be restful, needs to come into your house and bring chaos. That's what he does. But it says, then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it, it will find the house unoccupied, clean, swept clean and, and, and put in order. But then it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this rick, wicked generation. And you know what Jesus is saying, first of all, about the strong man. I'm stronger than the strong man. And I have come to bring Shabbat rest. I kick the strong man out. That's what Sabbath is about. It's about God kicking the strong man out of our lives, has he? And you know what? I know what some of you are thinking right now. I'm not that person. I don't live that kind of life. I don't live in that kind of place. Like what? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Think about who Jesus is is addressing here when he's talking about the strong man. Who are the people he's warning? See, when we think of the demonic and we think of things satanic, we just think about those who live in maybe a drug-infested or gang-infested whorehouse. Jesus is addressing to to what would be the equivalent of Bible Belt America. And he's saying to them, you are the ones who are most in danger of the strong man. I'm going to tell you something. This is my opinion. Because religion, religion, this man-centered thing, this This external thing. It looks so good on the outside. But it can be the most satanic thing there is. In fact, it's my opinion. The greatest enemy of the gospel is not sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's religion. Take heed, Grand Rapids. We have a church on every street corner, don't we? He loves, he loves to make his home in religious places. Moving on. Look at verses 46 through 49. This is a great pericope. um, It's starting with, yeah, 46. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. I can kind of picture that whole scene. And then someone tells him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. I love this. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my brother. You know what Sabbath is? Sabbath is about being reconciled to God. See, God within himself, and we talk about this a lot here, God within, him, God within himself, first and foremost, is a family, a family of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason why God made the world, the reason why God made us, is so that he could share his family with us. We were made for this family. Now notice verse 13, because this is how this connects with the verses I just read. Jesus says to this man, stretch out your hand. Now go to verse 48 through 49. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? In the Greek, it's an exact same clause. And Jesus stretched out his hand to his disciples. In other words, Jesus asks us to stretch out our hand, to stretch out to him all the things that are broken in us, and then what he does is he stretches out his hand. Because Jesus did not come to just fix a broken world. Jesus came to fix a broken relationship. Augustine said it so well. God has made us for himself, and our souls are restless. They're Sabbathless until they Sabbath rest in him. Now, to really get at the meaning of Sabbath and the kind of Sabbath Jesus came to bring, we need to go way back to the beginning, the beginning of the Bible, which is God creating the world. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 2, says that God rested on the seventh day. He looked at everything that he made, and he said, this is very good. And he rested. He shabbated. God shabbated on the Shabbat. Okay, now, this is where you got to ask a question. Wait a second. (laughs) What does it mean that God rested? Does that mean that God got tired? After creating the world, did God need a nap? Did God need a vacation? Of course not. Because the rest that we're talking about is more than physical rest. Think about this. After each day of creation, what did God say? That's good. That's good. That's good. What did he say at the end? He looked at everything when it was finished and he said, oh. That's rest. It's to look at everything that's been done and to be utterly satisfied and to be able to say, oh, that's really good. See, that's the kind of rest the Bible is talking about. It's deeper than physical rest. It's more than a good nap. It's more than a good night's sleep. It's more than a good vacation or a good holiday. True rest is being able to look at your work the same way God looks at his work and to be utterly satisfied in, in it. And you'll say, ooh, that's good. Let me ask you, can you look at your work right now in the same way God looks at his work? 
Can you look at your work right now with utter satisfaction and really in your heart say, that's good, that's really good. I mean, just look around at, at the world we live in. In all our doing, all our busyness, all our running around like our heads are cut off, our working, in all our producing, people are uptight, they're fretting, they're anxious, they're fidgeting. There is no rest. And I'm telling you, even vacations and days off only make us more restless. Why is this? I think Rocky said it best in the first Rocky movie. (laughs) He says to his trainer, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. See, this is why we work. We're always trying to prove ourselves. We're scared that we might just be another bum from the neighborhood. And see, it's not the work itself that makes us tired and and weary. I mean, God had work before the fall. There was work in the Garden of Eden, but it's this work underneath the work. It's this trying to prove ourselves and to others that we're valuable And we work to just assure ourselves that we're worth something, that we're important. Because we're taught from the time we're very little that the more we do, the more we accomplish, the more that we get done, the more we are. And therefore, our whole identity, our value and worth as people, it's so much tied to what we do, what we get done. We're not human beings, or at least we don't. See ourselves as that. We're human doings. What have you done? What have you accomplished? And see, this work that we give ourselves, it's never finished. It's never complete. It's never enough. And this is why God instructs Sabbath to remind us that we are more than our work. Because you look at the text in the Torah, every time God tells him to remember Sabbath, whether it's the Sabbath day or the Sabbath year, think about that, a whole Sabbath year. He gives it purpose, and the purpose is simple. I want you to remember. I want you to remember what you were. You were slaves, and I want you to remember who I am and what I did for you, how I redeemed you with an outstretched arm, how I saved you. You're mine. My segula. And that's why we remember Sabbath. We remember Sabbath so we can remember who we really are. That we're not what the world tells us we are six days a week, but we have one day a week where we can understand who we are in light of God and who he says we are. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are when you aren't doing anything? accomplishing something? Do you know who you are when you're not making money? Do you know who you are when you're not building something or completing something? What does it say about us that we can't rest? See, if you and I can't say no to our work, we're still slaves in Egypt, aren't we? Our work defines us. 
Some of you guys remember a few years ago when I, when I got mono. I mean, it took me out. I could hardly get enough strength to get out of bed in the morning. Remember the fifth day, I was just laying in bed. I felt so weak. And the tears just came to my eyes. I, I, I remember weeping like a baby, I, I, just sobbing. It wasn't because I was bedridden for five days. It wasn't even because I felt so physically weak. It's because I remember in that moment, God whispering to my soul, Rod, rest, rest. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop thinking that anyone needs you, that a church even needs you. Stop it. Rest. Stop trying to prove yourself, Rod. Are you in need of rest today? You know what Jesus says? I am Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm Lord of the rest. In fact, in in Hebrews 4, speaking of this a little bit more full, or flushing this out a little bit more, In verse 3, it says, Now we who have believed the gospel have entered that rest. In verse 10, For anyone who enters God's rest, enters God's rest, also rests from their works, just as God rested from his work. In other words, what Hebrews is telling us is that through Christ, we get to enter his rest. And what's the rest that Jesus offers? Well, Hebrews is telling us that because of Jesus and what Jesus has done and the rest that he offers us, you and I can look at our life and we can look at ourselves and we can be utterly satisfied. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing else needs to be satisfied for us to be satisfied. That it is good. That it is really good. That all the work that we need to do is finished. We don't need to prove ourselves. And how does Jesus do that? Well, it's all over in our text. And I'll let you read it this week. I mean, I could take you to the part on Jonah. Or I could connect you the Son of Man, to Daniel 7, which is this great statement about the Son of Man, who is this king to come, who's the king to end all kings, and his kingdom will be forever. And I could connect that to Isaiah 42, which is a remez of Isaiah 42 through 53, and and show you what the Son of Man came to do. But I'll do it in a more efficient way than that. Connect verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath with verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. See, the Son of Man must be killed. And it's in being killed that he's made Lord of the Sabbath and brings about Sabbath rest to a weary world. Because what did Jesus say? What's the last thing Jesus said when he was being killed? It's finished. My work 
is finished. He lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live. He died the satisfactory death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus did it. He accomplished it. So how do I get this rest then? It's not by being a Pharisee. Because a Pharisee prides himself in his work, in his doing, in his performance. It's what he can produce and give to God. But we need to see that it doesn't matter how good we are or how good our work is, all of our spiritual doing, all of our spiritual striving, it will never be enough. Never. And we know it. Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weary. I will give you rest. In other words, lay your deadly doing down and trust my work. Trust my doing. Because if you want to know what a true Christian is, a Christian, a genuine Christian, is simply someone who rests not on their work, but Christ's finished work, not in their performance, but in Christ's perfect performance. Because remember what true rest is. It's looking at what's been done and being deeply satisfied, being able to say, that's really good. And see, when you and I trust Christ and we trust his work and we rest in it, the God of the universe, the only one that we really need to prove ourselves, he looks at us as if he's looking at his own son. And he says, that's good. That's really good. Are you restful? Let's pray. God, I pray that your kingdom would be unleashed in us. so that we could have Sabbath, true Sabbath rest that only comes when we take our lives and we let them rest in you. In your finished work, Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would lay all of our doing down, our proving ourselves, our striving. Give us rest in Jesus' name.